0: and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name's Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia as just being part of the gig, spending more than 30 years in morning television and radio. Well, I dug a little bit deeper and found out that I had a lot more to learn. So, in this series, we're gonna try to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken. Maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. This is our first episode of season two, and not only can you find this on your favorite podcast app, but now it's also available on YouTube and on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. There's also a short version called the Snooze Button Express that takes all the sleepy time goodness of the snooze button and crams it into a nine minute highlight package. Nine minutes, because that's exactly how much time you get when you actually hit the snooze button on most alarm clocks quick history on what the show is about the snooze button is actually a book that i'm writing about a search for a fix for my insomnia problems and in that search i've been talking to sleep researchers and specialists from around the world so season one of the show was very science heavy season two we continue to talk to those better brains but we're also going to be speaking to celebrities and high achievers who have sleep challenges built into their day-to-day experience i'm going to get a sleep tip from each of those people, try it out myself for a couple of weeks and report back about what things are working and what things aren't worth investing your hopes and your dollars in. We're gonna get to this week's guest in just a second, but first, this week's (laughs) Beditorium. something new we're playing with on the show, because although I'm not a sleep scientist, heck, I don't even play one on TV, I do spend an obscene amount of time talking to sleep researchers and specialists, and one of the things I keep hearing from that community is that there seems to be a level of frustration with communicating the results of scientific research to the general public. There's almost this thing of people's eyes glazing over, like the tryptophan from every Thanksgiving dinner they've ever had in their whole life is kicking in right now, or... The same look that most husbands get about 76 seconds into your average rom-com. You know the face. We've seen it through the COVID-19 pandemic and the pandemic itself has led to a pet irritant of mine that has nothing to do with COVID at all. As I put this week's episode together, we were hearing a lot about getting kids back to school and getting kids back to school safely. And the gulf of difference between what the scientists want, what the parents want, what the teachers want, and what's actually best for the kids is kind of like a meeting of the United Nations where everybody forgot to bring their translators. Everybody's talking, nobody's actually listening, but the part of the conversation that's interesting to me is that there are all these groups that for whatever reason suddenly have taken an interest in what's best for the kids. People in the sleep world know exactly where I'm going with this conversation, but do me a favor and don't get too far ahead of me. If you're not a scientist, walk with me for a second through a little bit of a thought experiment. And that is a very critical phrase, a thought experiment. What if I told you, hypothetically, that there are countless studies that prove, not just suggest, but prove that waiting for another month to send your kids back to school would result in a 16 percent drop in teenage car crashes. Waiting a month would all but guarantee them a higher GPA. What if I told you that sending them back now would increase their chances of suffering a sports injury, would increase their risk of depression and suicide, and increase their chances of participating in behaviors like smoking and drinking and drug use. Well, pretty much every parent on the planet, at least the ones that I know, would be screaming from the rooftops that, oh, we got to delay school by a month, if not longer. It's their safety, for goodness sake. we got to do something. Except that there are countless studies like that. Not about sending them back, though. In fact, it's nothing connected to COVID whatsoever. Do you want your kids to do better in school? Do you want to get better grades, you want them to actually show up to class, you want them to be 16% less likely to get in a car wreck, you want them to reduce their risk of getting hurt playing sports, lower their risk of tobacco, alcohol, drugs, you want to lower their risk of suicide, let them sleep an hour longer. No, that's it. That's the whole fix. And by the way, it's not because teenagers are lazy and it's not because they're addicted to TikTok, it's not because they have too much homework. Well, Okay, maybe they do have a little bit too much homework. Teachers, come on. They only have so much time once they get home. It's because of science. It's because of the way that your hormones work when you are a teenager and it begs for a schedule that is in alignment because you have no control over it. You remember being a teenager, right? (laughs) You remember hormones? Yeah, don't worry because I'm not going to take you there because I'm in no position to. Uh, if I took my teenage years and put that in a Brat Pack movie, I'd make Anthony Michael Hall look like James Dean. I was awkward like first time you walked in on your parents. Awkward. Yeah, but getting back to the sleep thing. For most teenagers, having them wake up at for school at 6 or 7, that would be like having you wake up at 3 or 4. Trust me, I woke up at 3 or 4 for 30 years, and it is... So much less glamorous than it seems. I spent three decades willing to hack off a limb with a spork for an extra hour. So for a teenager, optimal bedtime, somewhere around 11. Optimal wake-up time, somewhere around 8. Maybe even later. And that's wake-up time. Not be at school ready to go time. Let's be clear. You make them wake up earlier than that. The science says they're more likely to get in a car wreck. The science says they're more likely to get hurt on the playing field, more likely to smoke, drink, do drugs, more likely to see a hit in their grades, and they're more likely to suffer from depression and more likely to think about suicide. That's not hyperbole. That's science. I'm going to put the links to the science on our website at the thesnoozebutton.com. But if you're a school administrator or a parent with teenagers in school, here's my question. How many more seconds of this do you need to listen to before you get angry enough to demand that someone makes a change because they've made choices that are making your kids more likely to think about suicide? They say you are always best to start new things among friends and so it is with that in mind that we figured that it would be a good idea for the very first guest of season two of the snooze button to be our friend Dr. Seema Kosla, the medical director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep. Uh, she's board certified in 11 D7 different things. <laughs> she's kind of a big deal and for some reason she had time to spend. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you? You're giving me way too much credit as usual.
0: Yeah, I am. Uh, no, I'm not. It's okay. Uh, so it'll, congratulations,
1: it'll right? Season two?
0: Thank you. Yeah, and there's this part now, which is going to be weird to get used to. But you know. Yeah,
1: I don't like it.
0: Did you like it when Good Morning America called and asked me to do it? <laughs> on the phone with the Good Morning America people going, do I really have to be on camera? Really? Because I don't, I don't know. It's. I don't like it. I don't know. Can I take? <laughs> can you take the brown M and M's out? Is that possible? Can we do that? Um, no. Listen, I'm glad you're here. We got a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, but of course, season two, every show will begin the same way that all the episodes of season one began, which is that same infamous question that everyone loves so much: How did you sleep last night?
1: I'm ready for it. Are you? Yeah, I actually did not sleep well last night. Oh. <laughs> I oh. did not. So well. I'm looking forward to sleeping really well tonight.
0: Okay, so when you don't, what do you do about it? Do you just kind of write it off and, and hope to do better the next night?
1: It depends. If it's a weekend, I definitely sleep in. Huh. Like 100%, even though, you know, because I, I, I'm trying to preserve my sleep hours. Right. You know, and so to me, my sleep hours impact me more than maybe shifting my circadian rhythm a little bit. And so I always want to capture, you know, enough sleep hours, even if it means that I'm going off my schedule a little bit.
0: Sleep debt's a thing, right? Can people it's, catch up on the weekends?
1: Yeah, you know. I mean, it's better than not catching up, right? Is it as good as getting a consistent sleep through the week? No. Is it better than just consistently getting five hours? Yeah.
0: Interesting. Okay, so um, while we've all been locked up and the show's been on hiatus for it's got to be close to six months now, I'm assuming that in the science of sleep world, uh, that that has continued to chug along, or has it? Because you can't really have people into a sleep lab, can you?
1: We can now. Oh. We are doing a ridiculous amount of COVID mitigation. So we started pretty early, right? Because we had to really be thoughtful about what we were doing, right? We want to keep our patients safe, and we want to keep our staff safe. And so we look at the mechanism of covid right the aerosolization so we said hey our favorite toy is a cpap and it is an aerosol generator so how can we reduce the risk so we have viral filters (laughs) we have these closed circuits for cpap so the air doesn't escape in the sleep lab you know we um, talked to the engineer and really ramped up how often the air is exchanged in the lab Um, all of our staff have been vaccinated we have lots of ppe you know, so we really just we really just want to keep people safe.
0: Are the people that are coming into the sleep lab, are they doing extra PPE beyond what... Because I'm trying to think, I mean, the electrodes on your head and a CPAP on top of it, the, there's no more room left on your noggin to put anything else. So that's probably the limit of it, right?
1: Well, we ask them to wear a mask as much as they can during the setup right until they put the thing under their nose.
0: Interesting. Yep. Huh. And
1: so we're, we just really want to be like we want to be respectful for what's happening in the world right and and part of that is respecting how important it is to diagnose and treat a sleep disorder so if we look at the data that's come out out of new york and other meta-analyses um there seems to be an association with sleep apnea and worse COVID outcomes And, and so there's a signal in the data it's hard to pull it out from the bmi signal but even anecdotally, I've had patients who, you know, their whole family gets sick, and they have a pretty mild course, and they think it may be because of the CPAP, right? So we know that CPAP supports your oxygen level. It helps you sleep deeper. You get better sleep architecture, right? The the normal stages of sleep, which is important for your immune system. We know that good sleep is important for vaccine responsiveness. And so it's you know we, we we talked about before how you know we were doing emergent things right like if you had a hot appendix you had a heart attack that was easy you went to the hospital sure. and if you were fine and and there's nothing wrong with you you stayed home but then there is this middle ground where sleep testing lives right it's not emergent but it's important and so we're really revisiting what that means and trying to be really really safe and so we do as much home sleep apnea testing as we can when we bring people in, we screen them, right? We check their temperature. We ask where, you know, if they've been in any high-risk activities, uh, and then we, we, it's really up to medical discretion, medical director discretion for who actually comes physically into the lab.
0: Are you finding now with people, at least for the longest time, while all this was going on, uh, and not that it's stopped going on, not that it's going to stop going on anytime soon, but people were hesitant to go to the doctor, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of sick people there. Um, and, and so I assume that was probably the same vibe of the sleep lab, or were people coming to you having done more self-diagnosing in an offer, in an effort to try and offset how much time they were going to have to spend at the lab? <laughs>
1: I don't know if that entered into their mind that they wanted to offset time, but, you know, we definitely had a lot of reluctance, right? And so we switched right away to telemedicine, 100%. And so we had a number of patients that didn't want to come in via telemedicine, then they were waiting, right, until we opened up. And so we've kept them on a list, and we've actually scheduled most of them to, to do telemedicine. You know, but we do plan to open up clinic. You know, in a couple of weeks, and just roll it out and see. You know, in the interim, we wound up downsizing our space. You know, we realized that so many people work effectively from home that we don't need so much space, office space, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in the midst of all of this, we're moving. So, like a couple of Fridays ago, I was physically moving a desk into my office. <laughs> you know, so we are we are not quite up and running yet, but we're close to it. So maybe another few days and we'll be up and running.
0: Is your experience right now that sleep hasn't changed much while COVID has been going on in terms of the root causes of people's sleep problems? Or is COVID at the root cause of a whole pile of new sleep problems now?
1: Yes and yes. (laughs) So we have both, right? So we have the pre-existing sleep disorder, right? We also have this exacerbation of maybe insomnia that's happened with COVID and this, these COVID dreams and this COVID-somnia, right, where we're so stressed out about our jobs and our livelihood and getting sick that we can't sleep. You know, it's been interesting because we have this population of people who historically haven't been getting enough sleep. And I had one guy, I remember he drove like 180 miles each way. And so all of a sudden he can telecommute and he's getting plenty of sleep now and he feels great. And so, you know, the the other part, you know, that we're kind of wondering is, is there direct impact of COVID on the brain, right? Is there this encephalopathy component? So, uh, you know, we we sort of bin people into these different categories. There's the people that are sort of in the Zoom neighborhoods that have been working remotely and they have anxiety and that sort of thing, right? And kids that are distance learning. And you've got the people that are frontline, Right, that have their stressors and they're at risk. I had one lady that works at a big box store and she wound up taking a leave of absence because people were awful to her. They would spit. Really? Yes, it was awful. They would spit at her because they were mad that she was asking them to put on a mask, right? Or she was sanitizing or what have you. So, um, and then you've got this group of people that actually had COVID. And so we're seeing a little bit more of this insomnia. So is it because of direct impact of the virus on the brain? Or is it because people have been in the hospital and they haven't been around their loved ones and they're a little bit more confused? You know, we've seen a little bit more delirium in the hospital. You know, and and down the road are we gonna see more sleep apnea? Right? We know historically if we look at other models when we have big, bad, ugly lung disease and, and your lungs take a hit that it changes the physiology, right? It changes how stiff your lungs are, and we do see a little bit more sleep apnea. And so, you know, is that part of it, right? Are the lungs not effective at at, at exchanging oxygen? And is the oxygen level low at night because of sleep apnea?
0: How much of what's going on is just plain old stress?
1: Oh, I'm sure a ton of it. A ton hmm. of it, right? Hmm. And it's and it's different types of stress. It's stress about you know, my job and getting sick and and all these different things that we've never thought about. When will I go back to normal, right? What does normal look like? You know, I am I feel a little guilty today. Actually, my 11-year-old daughter wanted to go to a St. Paddy's Day party. And, you know, at her friend. And we've had them play with, like, kids in their bubble, right? And now they're both back in school. And so then I got on the phone and was talking to the mom. And she's like, you know what? I have to be honest with you. We're not doing any COVID restrictions. We're going to have, like, you know, probably they've invited 25 people and they don't know how many are going to show up. And she's Mm -hmm. like, but I'm just going to be honest with you. Like we don't practice COVID restrictions. And I'm like, so my kid's at home.
0: (laughs) Well, and I mean, look at Florida, right? I mean, that's the thing that at least uh, as you and I are sitting down to to record this conversation, everything is pointing toward Florida and Florida never masked up. Florida never restricted. Mm -hmm. Florida never did anything. And their numbers are comparable to what's going on in New York and what's going on in California and other places so then the question becomes is there something peculiar about Florida that kept their numbers from spinning out of control is there there's so many factors it feels like at play in all of this I, I, I you know you tell me that people at big box stores are being spat on uh, simply for you know simple existing, protocols yeah. that we've all been following for the last year At this point, it's like, come on, get over it. We can do it for just that little tiny bit longer. Any data out there yet, I wonder, with people who've been vaccinated and what the vaccination might be doing with for to their sleep?
1: Ah, that I don't know. You know, we've talked about vaccine response and and just a comment about Florida. I think the, the challenge about Florida is so many people go there to visit and then those covid numbers don't get counted for florida right like i have i don't know how many patients that like i know if they tell me they've been to florida they're like and i got COVID." (laughs) like it's just sort of part of the conversation right and uh And, and so, I don't know how they're accounting for that. But I mean, you know, what's
0: funny is that I haven't heard a single person bring that up yet in all the coverage that there's been about Florida. But you're right. It is, it, it's a sorry if you're listening or watching in Florida, you're a tourist hotspot. And so, mm-hmm. maybe that is why the Florida numbers haven't spiked because. You go to Florida, you go there for a week, maybe two mm-hmm. weeks. By the time you've got COVID, you're already back home. Right. By the time you're testing positive for COVID, you're already home again. And so right. you're right. It doesn't show up in Florida's numbers. That's fascinating. I didn't even yeah. think of that.
1: Yeah, I don't wow. know. I mean, I'm just that's just anecdotally based on my, my, like this past week, I think I've had two people that went to Florida and they both got COVID. I'm like, you know, note to self.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me Stay just cross that off the list for now. Yeah. When things, do you anticipate that when things go back to normal, normal, whatever normal looks like, and I keep making the point that we don't have to go back to normal. Mm-hmm. We can decide what normal looks like going forward, and maybe we can turf a bunch of things that we didn't like to begin with. But when things get back to normal, do you anticipate things improving, or is there just kind of always going to be, for the next little while, this constant level of, sleep problems
1: you know I think what we'll see there'll be a lag I think right just because so many people haven't gone to the lab and haven't you know haven't gotten a diagnosis and haven't really wanted to be in a hospital facility or or any sort of clinical facility right so I think there'll be a lag Um, but you know I kind of do think that the the new normal is gonna be I mean do I dare say like will it be better like will we all be better about washing our hands and will we all be better about just staying home when we're sick right and and sort of recognizing that what i do impacts my neighbor
0: i saw right. a, a message on a, a reddit a subreddit today in a place that's uh, i know near and dear to your heart calgary um where they were saying uh gosh I, i'm starting to think about a mask being part of my day-to-day going mm-hmm. forward even after all of this is in the rearview mirror much like it is in some other parts of the world mask is just part of what you wear like shoes When you go outside, you put on your shoes, you put on your mask, you hit the door. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting to watch that idea develop because I don't know that a lot of people have been talking about it yet. But then there is this idea where you're seeing the numbers of people who are hesitant to get the vaccination in the first place. And you're thinking, well, if we don't get that percentage, we're never going to get to herd immunity. And so Mm -hmm. potentially we might be dealing with this for ages and maybe masks will have to become of, much to Rand Paul's disappointment, of course, uh, masks may have to become a fashion statement going forward. Who knows? Yeah.
1: You know what? I I have a a Fauci mask that I really like. (laughs) A Fauci (laughs) mask? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a very cool mask. It's orange and it has little Dr. Fauci's on it. And so I, I was somewhere, you know, it was funny. I haven't been out in a year yeah. And then I wound up meeting somebody for a work thing at a restaurant.
0: Right. And it was
1: empty, right? And and the somebody walking in the restaurant stopped me. She's like, is that Dr. Fauci on your mask? I'm like, yep.
0: <laughs> no, nah, I got to find me one of those. I didn't even know those were a thing. Oh, it's the fabulous. Only, the only uh, Fauci-specific reference I've seen lately, other than uh, the, the battle he had with uh, the eye doctor in, uh, in the Senate the other day, um, was uh, that the vaccination has started to be called the Fauci-ouchie. Which I'm kind of cool yeah. with.
1: I am kind of cool. I, you know what? It was emotional getting my vaccination. Really? It was. Yep. Because, you know, for me. So, you know, when I look at the way my particular clinic is set out, there are, you know, like two or three patient facing people. But we in in Fargo, we do the IT for Medbridge Healthcare, which is this national sleep company. And so we house IT. We have a call center. So there's a lot of non-clinical people in my office. And I didn't want to see patients until it was safe, because it's not fair, right? Because like the three of us or four of us would be eligible to get the vaccine. And so it's not fair to like traipse all these people into clinic and potentially expose a ton of people that aren't that aren't clinical. Right. And so um, it just happened to work out really well in North Dakota. I, I will say out of all of the things that North Dakota has done, they've done a really good job with vaccination. It's been efficient. It's It's been done really, really well.
0: Yeah, I think places are either doing great at it or they're doing terribly at it. And then, of course, uh, we could go down the whole side road of vaccination and how COVID is, be, is disproportionately affecting certain populations, how the vaccine is only mm-hmm. getting into the arms of people outside of those certain populations. Um, how sleep problems to begin with disproportionately affect certain populations. There's a lot of moving parts to all of this. And, And it's one of the reasons I asked right out of the gate if if there's any brilliant new sleep science that has caught your eye, because part of me feels like, and as I was starting to think of the date when season two was gonna become available for the snooze button, I started thinking, is anybody, is sleep even on anybody's radar anymore? Because before COVID, this was, sleep was the next global health crisis. And then COVID went, hold my beer, you know? (laughs) and, and so I, I hesitated about whether or not people were even conscious of their sleep. And then the more people I started asking, the more people came back to me with answers like, oh, no, my sleep is more uh, fragile than it mm-hmm. probably has ever been before. So I wish we could, you know, now that we're, we're talking about case numbers and vaccinations and all that, I wish we could get back to some of those other things that I was so focused on before COVID stole all the attention away.
1: And I think it, we're probably looking at it with a different lens though, right? Like my clinic is full of people that are like, I can't sleep, COVID's, I had, I had one lady, I had to write a letter to her boss, you know, just because with, with COVID they put all this extra work on her and she just physically did not have like enough hours in the day to sleep because of all these added duties because of COVID and then stress and all of this. I had to write a letter to her boss to be like, hey, you know what, sleep's really important and you need to let her get adequate sleep hours.
0: <laughs> How do those letters go over? Do you know when they're received, if you have to put something like that together?
1: So far, so good. Yeah, you know, because I think I think sometimes it's something that people have difficulty articulating. And oftentimes it's met in, in this very dismissive manner. Yeah, well, I wish I could get more sleep, too right sure i don't want to work nights either but when you already have a sleep disorder and then you're effectively adding another sleep disorder in in terms of insufficient sleep it's exponential right you feel that much worse you're that much more susceptible and some people are fine doing night shift for example and other people are not you know the average sort of lifespan of a light of a night shift work is 10 years before they either get sick of it but then you see these people that have done it for 40 years and they're fine You know it's all about finding something that's that's very personalized right for that person in front of you and that's who i'm advocating for
0: i think what's absolutely true though correct me if i'm wrong is the number you know we hear about this tiny percentage of the population that are wired to not need very much sleep and what i can almost guarantee you is that the number of people who think that they're a part of that tiny little percentage of the population Mm -hmm. is much larger than the number of people who actually belong there
1: yeah for sure it would be kind of cool, right? Like I'm, I'm envious if I had that clock gene, right? If I had that, that ability to, to be a short sleeper and be fine. I mean, imagine how much more productive you would be. You know, one of my attendings when I was a fellow, I think he had it because he slept four hours and was ridiculously, he was just so efficient at everything he worked out. He researched, he saw p- clinic patients, he taught fellows. I mean, he was unstoppable. And he was fine, four hours of in- sleep.
0: Interesting. Because that is, I mean, there is that tiny, and if mm-hmm. it, I forget how many episodes back into season one you'd have to go to find the, the show where we covered that, but there is that tiny underline, yellow highlighter marker, circle mm-hmm. it in red. Tiny percentage of the population that, yeah, they can skate by like that. I'm excited in a couple minutes to talk to Adrian Owen because, you know, he had the massive study of sleep and cognition and it was kind of him in the very first, he was the very first guest we ever had on the show um, pointed me down this road of too little sleep and too much sleep. Both things, both things have sort of an equivalent impact on your cognitive abilities where, you know, Adrian's study Uh, revealed that, and and I loved everything about this study, but one of the things that I loved the most about it was, sure, they found out that, you know, getting two or three hours too little sleep every night, from a cognition perspective, ages your brain by 10 years, but so does getting two or three hours too much sleep, and the thing I loved about that study is they didn't see the too much sleep part coming. They kind of knew that the the too little sleep was going to have an impact and they were just trying to put a number on it but then what they saw was people who were getting too much sleep took a similar performance hit and i thought wow that's you know when you can teach the researchers something that they didn't even think was going to happen those are those are fun studies to read
1: but we've seen that pattern right in a lot of sleep research when you look at mortality when you look at morbidity you do see this you know that on either end of that spectrum right you you have these higher numbers uh, of worse outcomes and is it because there's you know like why do these people need more sleep is it because they have underlying whatever and is that part of that increased morbidity right and so it's really hard to to pull that out and i think it just really goes to speak to the need to um you know really be thoughtful about what is right for you right like 10,000 steps isn't right for everybody right 8 hours isn't right for everybody right and you have to find and it's going to shift too depending on how you feel, depending on what's happening in your life, right? Like, I'm a nine-hour girl. And some nights, can I get by on seven? Yeah, absolutely. And some nights, do I need more than that if I'm not feeling well, sure, right? Mm-hmm. But we all have a different, we have a different sort of home base that we come back to.
0: It's, well, it's the same, in and and I hate tying sleep science and nutritional science together in any way, shape, or form, because I feel like, comparatively speaking, based on what I've seen in the, in the sleep science world, everything regarding nutrition is just Irresponsible, and, and the people who put together the peer-reviewed journals are like, let's just throw this one out there. Let's see what they do with that. Um, where, you know, the sleep people are pretty buttoned up. But you talk about getting to a stage of what's right for you. How do you feel what feels good? It's the same with the weight loss people because they will, uh, they'll stand in front of the mirror and they'll like the way they look and they like the way their clothes fit today and everything's good and then they step on the scale for a second and the scale doesn't give them the number that they think it should and then they go, oh my God, I'm, I've turned into a cow. I have to go on a diet. Even though a couple minutes ago looking in the mirror, everything was great. They liked the way they look. They liked the way their clothes were fit and all those things were firing on all cylinders for them, right?
1: That's exactly it, right? Like, and that's what I, I try to counsel you know, with my patients, when they have some sort of sleep technology gadget, I'm like, "Tell me how you feel in the morning, not how Fitbit says you slept." Yeah. Tell me how you feel before you look at it, and and there is a difference, right? And even just reframing that, I think, is helpful. It's an adjunct, right? It's one piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole answer. And so the, the how you feel is way and, more important.
0: And uh, all of the other things that come along with it are kind of top of mind for me because that's the other part of season two is gathering tips from people and testing them out myself and I'm glad you brought that part up about how you feel and the various other bits and pieces of it because moving forward on season two a very important part for me of gauging whether or not different things are working or are not working is where I am from a cognitive perspective so we're gonna chat with Adrian Owen in a second about that but I want to thank you for making room to uh, help us kick off season two. Thanks for this, my friend. Of
1: course, thank you. Always good to see you.
0: So before we get to Dr. Adrian Owen on this episode of The Snooze Button, um, something new as well, as well as our new presence on YouTube with the show, we've also got a sponsor. Go figure. I've never wanted to have sponsors on the show because usually sponsorships mean pushing something you don't believe in or pushing something that you don't use. And this is one of those exceptions where it is something I use. Um, I have probably about a half a dozen different website projects that I'm involved in. You know, there's a website for the snooze button. There are websites for various other things that I'm involved in. And every single time I've taken on a new project, the very first step in every single one of them is to sign up web hosting for them with a company called Nexcess, N-E-X-C-E-S-S. But before you go there, let me give you a special bonus. If you are looking for website hosting, I have a different site for you to go to. It's called neilsentme.com. Now, if you type in neilsentme.com and you go there, it's gonna take you to the Nexus website, but the difference will be it's going to offer you a special deal with a special offer code. If you put in build now, when neilsentme.com sends you over to Nexus and you use the coupon code BUILDNOW, you will get 25% off your first three months. Now, what does that mean? The same package that I use, for example, for all my website projects, normally the price is $19 a month for what they call managed WordPress hosting. And WordPress, of course, you know what WordPress does if you're a person that hosts websites. WordPress is tremendous and does all kinds of amazing, wonderful things. Now, what you get with that 25% off means you're paying $14.25 a month for your first three months with 24-7 support from people who actually give a rat's ass about what your particular challenges and problems might be. All those different things. So check it for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Although the fact that every single project that I'm involved in right now, step one is using Nexcess for my web hosting. That might indicate something for you. Go take a look. snoozebotton.com, powered by Nexcess. But if you go to NeilSentMe.com, you get 25% off your first three months. Go check. Okay. So he was the very first guest we ever had on the show. And it only made sense to bring him back. For the first episode of season two, Dr. Adrian Owen OBE from the Owen Lab and the University of Western Ontario and Cambridge Brain Sciences. Morning, how are you?
2: I'm good, Neil. Thanks very much for having me back on.
0: Thank you for uh, for taking some time. Um, same first question that you got the first time you were on. Same first question that everybody that's ever on the show gets. How'd you sleep last night?
2: Good, actually. I slept well. I. Um... I've been—I've actually been really monitoring my sleep lately for various reasons, I'm trying to get more. Uh, and I've done a few things to a uh, few things to sort of try and keep it under control. After our study came out, and you know, we established that seven to eight hours the, was the absolute perfect amount. I try and get exactly eight hours every night.
0: Wow. Okay, that's. I'm. I'm happy just to get sleep. But you're going for an exact amount. Um, what now for a brain scientist who has a sleep lab at his disposal? What does monitoring your sleep look like for you?
2: Uh, I've done it in various ways over the years, obviously w- when you're at home, uh, you know, I can't bring all the lab equipment uh, back with me, so sure. um, I-, I typically use an Apple Watch at the moment, I started with a Fitbit and I found I could get uh, better heart rate uh, measurements with my Apple Watch, so that's what I use at the moment, it's, it's reasonably accurate.
0: As far yeah, I mean wake sleep. I know it does. I mean once that start once those wearables start to get off into stages and things like that, that's when the the numbers become a little bit more dicey. And it's interesting too because you're one of the first people that sort of shed a light on the science behind monitoring your sleep for me. And so I I wanted to bring you back for this episode in particular because season two of the show kind of marks a turning point. It's it's where I go from learning as much as I can about sleep and I mean that's going to continue through the rest of the show but now it's also the actual research is me search part where I'm going to start testing out various things that people say will help your sleep and see whether or not they actually do you know melatonin and weighted blankets and CBD and all these different things that are purported to help your sleep and then track them so I've got my Bunch of devices that I want to use. But one of the things that was important to me as I started doing this stage of the project was monitoring if any of these different sleep things were having an impact on my cognitive abilities. And nobody that I know knows more about this than you. In fact, you've got an entire website devoted to cognition at Cambridge Brain Sciences. Uh, and we'll put links everywhere and all that so people know how to get to it, but you've got a whole series, of, a battery of cognitive tests on the website, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, and the important thing to know about these tests is that they are they are brain-based. So these are not tests of sleep, per se, or they're not tests of uh, sort of arbitrary cognitive functions. These are all tests that have been developed in my lab over the last, well, almost 30 years now uh, and they're designed and, and actually have, have evolved to assess specific brain functions and, and brain networks and we've done that through testing patients who've had brain damage and adapting the tests to make them sensitive to that type of brain damage. We've done it by putting healthy people into brain scanners, into fMRI scanners or PET scanners and looking at how the tests activate different parts of the brain. And in doing that, we've created this one sort of suite of 12 tests. Uh, It takes a max of half an hour if you do all of the tests and uh, really that allows us to get a really good handle on what your brain function is like. And what I mean by that is how different parts of your brain are responding appropriately or otherwise to to various sort of fairly simple memory uh, attention and decision-making challenges.
0: Are the tests repeatable? Can you do them more than once? And maybe they're even designed to be repeatable.
2: Yes, I mean this is one of the things that that uh, we've always taken on board as 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 we develop these tests. I mean, many sort of standard neuropsychological or cognitive tests just have one version or maybe four versions, and that means you can basically do it four times until you know all the answers, and and you know you can't use it in the long term. So our tests all. Uh, they generate novel problems on the fly. So actually if you repeat the test you'll never see exactly the same problems again. Uh, That means we have very very uh, low practice curves. It means that people don't generally get much better over time. There's obviously an initial practice effect and that's to do with just getting used to what you're doing. But after that, uh, you can go on and test yourself many times. In fact, we have several members of the public, for reasons that I don't understand, have uh, tested themselves upwards of 500 times on, the, on, these, on these tasks.
0: Wow. Okay, so that's kind of one of the things I want to get to the core of. Let's, let's plunge me. In. And it's interesting that you talk about the idea of, of a practice. You know um, aptitude. You be you get better at the test the more times you do it, and and it sounds like you're set up to not enable that. There's a there's a test out there that you might be familiar with, not related to sleep at all. It's that Harvard test of, of unconscious bias. That people started talking about a lot after the George Floyd story popped into the news. And people were saying, well, you may have biases that you're not even aware of. Go take this test that Harvard put together. But what people found is that, you know, they would see the results. And more often than not, they didn't like the results. And so then they took the test again. And sure enough, by taking the test again and knowing what to expect their score got back to a place where they were more comfortable with it because they were able to manipulate it but it sounds like what you've got I can't game the system so for for my purposes my hypothetical let's use this one let's use uh, one of my favorites now melatonin so let's say I'm going to road test melatonin for two weeks and I figured out the dosage and the timing and all the things that go into making melatonin work um, at how often should I could I take the test at Cambridge Brain Sciences to see if my sleep has improved enough that I'm waking up more cognitively less cognitively impaired than I was before I tried melatonin for example
2: right that's a this is a really perfect example Neil of the sorts of real life experiments that we like people to do and this is exactly the reason we've set up Cambridge Brain Sciences you know we're agnostic about whether any of these things work um, but we like people to test them we like people who've got an idea or uh, want to just you know find out whether something like melatonin will improve their sleep we want them to go ahead and use Cambridge Brain Sciences to test that so you know what I would do is obviously you need to get a baseline and we encourage people to do the baseline at least twice, and that speaks to your previous comment about, you know, this issue of of getting used to the test. And once you know what the test is is actually trying to assess, it can make a difference to performance. And we actually want to iron that out. It, it's a it's a well known thing in all cognitive tests that. Once, once you sort of get it, you, you do tend to improve a little. Mm. Um, but we're interested in the actual performance that's behind that, rather than the you know the, impro- the improvement that's due to just just getting just that aha of just getting used to the test itself. Sure. So I would test yourself a couple of times. Uh, you can do it on consecutive days. It won't make any difference because the tests will, won't generate the same problems over again. So if you do it the next day, you know, you'll be familiar with what you have to do, but uh, you won't be particularly assisted by uh, seeing the same problems again. So I'll do it a couple of times. I then uh, start taking the melatonin or whatever dose you want. Um, and I'd probably give it some time to kick in. You know, it's not—it's probably not going to make a difference overnight. So right. you know, maybe take the melatonin for a week, uh, and then take the CBS tests a second time. You don't need to take it two times on every subsequent occasion. Once you've got over that initial, uh, you know, blip, as it were, you can just take it once whenever you're interested. What I do to make this a proper experiment is—you know—you really want to uh, then stop taking the melatonin. I mean, if you do see a difference and you're interested in knowing whether it's, it's real or not, stop taking the melatonin for a week and test yourself again uh, a week later, which will be two weeks after you started the whole study, uh, and see whether your uh, cognitive performance drops back to where it was at the start.
0: Yeah, I'm interested because my idea at this stage, and you've kind of been around this project long enough to hear me spout several iterations of it, but let's use melatonin again as an example. So I'll get my baseline, uh, I'll do melatonin for a couple of weeks, and then before I move on to whatever the next thing is, I'm going to go back to a week of not doing any kind of sleep assistance, almost as like... For lack of a better description, like a palate cleanser, you know, so that I can get back to, I may not get back to my baseline, um, but at least I will know that what I'm seeing isn't a hangover effect maybe from something that I took a couple of days ago, right?
2: Right, right. and that, that's a really important factor, right? And it's a, it's a basic scientific principle. Just change one thing at a time. And people doing this sort of thing will often say, OK, I'll, you know, I'll take some melatonin, I'll take some CBD, I'll go to bed earlier, I'll stop drinking and they pile it all on. And there's a difference. You get to the end of the study and you think, well, I wonder what it was that made all the difference. So just change one thing at a time. And sure. you're absolutely right. We call that a washout period. Leave a week between each thing for any effects to wash out before you start uh, start with the next type of intervention.
0: Well, I love that somebody with your credentials has signed off on sort of my, my approach to this. This is important to me because one of the things I mean one of the things I've learned in doing this show and, and speaking to so many researchers and scientists is and and I keep making this point that the sleep research and science seems to be pretty buttoned up and seems to be marching down a path. Um, you know your massive study that you did of sleep and cognition threw you a curveball that you did kind of didn't see coming that getting too much sleep has the same impact on your cognition as not getting enough sleep but for the most part you don't see surprises come out of sleep research because everyone seems to be pretty rigorous about the details whereas in the nutrition world you'll have five studies about cholesterol or caffeine that come out over the course of the same week and they all contradict each other because I feel like maybe those are more geared toward, I don't know, selling products or something that they're not worried about over on the sleep side. You know what I mean?
2: I do. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things, and this may, this may explain why uh, there's so much sort of inertia in the sleep literature. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things that came out of our study was just how many people are not getting an appropriate amount of sleep. I mean, over... Half of our study, and we had seventeen thousand people log in Remember, half of these people were getting under six and a half hours sleep a night. Uh, you know, we were. You know, we discovered that you've got to get between seven and eight to be at sort of your 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 optimal cognitive performance. And and more than half were getting uh, under six and six, six and a half hours. And, and actually, some thousands of people were getting four to five hours of sleep. And and I think. You know, this is not a very well recognized fact that many, many people are not getting an appropriate amount of sleep. And, and maybe if it was, uh, we, you know, there, there would be more, uh, you know, more impetus for people to work in this area. A bit
0: more. I keep telling people that before COVID knocked it off the front page, sleep was about to become the next global health crisis because it impacts so many people in so many ways. You know, in case you missed Adrian's first episode on the show we talked about this idea, and I'll invite you to go back and check it out, but we talked about this idea that cognition is such an important piece of this, not just because of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and all those things, but because cognition is something that is important to your life maybe a couple of hundred times a day, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the best example is is decision-making. You know, One of the things that came out about huge sleep study was that the thing that was really impaired by too little or too much sleep was decision making. Your memory actually is fine. So, you know, if you're worried about remembering your mother in law's name because you've only had four hours sleep, don't worry. It'll probably come to you, you'll be fine. But decision making was really profoundly impaired. And that means. It, big decisions like shall i buy a new car shall i get married shall i get divorced these sorts of things but also the sorts of simple everyday decisions that we make hundreds of times a day you know shall i go and get a drink do i have time to get the shopping before i got to pick up the kids from school um if i'm going to you know mail a letter am i going to what am i do i have all the the the, the things i need to have a stamp do i have an envelope do i know who it's going to i mean we are continually making small decisions throughout the day and it was that sort of decision-making that was that was affected by too little or too much sleep
0: well and my favorite piece of decision-making um, is now a good time to make a lane change on the highway you know yes yeah, right you know you think of how many decisions you make while you're out driving your car um, if everything from remembering to you know oh I'm going to decide to hit the indicator before I make the lane change oh I'm going to decide all these different things about something as simple as changing lanes but cognition plays a massive factor in all of that um sound a decision on my part to have you back for episode one of season two Adrian thanks for making room I'm going to make sure that the links to Cambridge Brain Sciences are everywhere that people can find it and find the tests uh and and I appreciate your input on this going forward as well thank you
2: Absolutely, it's a pleasure. I'd very happily keep in touch with your progress, Neil. Please tell me how it all goes. And
0: that's a wrap for our first episode for season two of the Snooze Button Podcast. Uh, You can follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can subscribe on our YouTube channel. If you go to our website at thesnoozebutton.com, all kinds of links and bonuses there, including ways to get in touch with our panel of sleep experts. If you've got a burning question that you would love to ask a sleep expert about, there are ways there to do that. Also ways to rate, review, support, the show. It's all waiting for you at the snoozebutton.com. Till we get together next week, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?